You really have to love this to have the skin to work in this game. When it comes to like founding a fund versus founding a startup, hopefully in 10 to 12 years, you've built the biggest business in your industry as a startup founder. In a fund, you're just getting started. Everybody is in the cannabis industry. They just might not publicly mention it. Hi, everyone. I'm Taiki, and you're listening to New to Venture. It's the show that uncovers the secret world of venture capital from the multi-billion dollar exits to the biggest company blowups. If you don't know that much about VC, you've come to the right place. It's time to get hyped because the one and only Helene Servion has joined us on the show today. Helene currently runs Journey One Ventures, an early stage VC fund that invests in the best companies in misunderstood markets, specifically in the cannabis industry. Helene has accumulated some amazing accomplishments, like guest lecturing at some of the top MBA programs, being declared Marijuana Ventures 40 Under 40, and recently being awarded the 2023 Innovator Award for Women Who Empower. So it's so obvious that she cares about helping companies and mentoring the next generation of business leaders through her participation in All Rays as a GP member, senior advisor at Bowen, a premier boutique investment bank, and Northeastern's Women's Interdisciplinary Society of Entrepreneurship and many more initiatives. I'm out of breath just saying all the amazing things that Helene has done, but <laughs> I'm so excited to dive deep into your amazing career so far. So Helene, welcome to the show. Well, I think if I started every morning with that iteration of accomplishments, <laughs> I'd wake up with so much motivation. So thank you for having me. Thank you for having me on the show, Taiki. I, I love being an alumni from Northeastern, and I love helping Northeastern students, alumni, and staff. So I'm super excited to jump in it and share my, my track record and story. Yeah, it's going to be a fun one, Helene. So before we dive right into startups and venture capital, you know, as you mentioned, we're both fellow Huskies. I just had to ask about your time playing D1 volleyball at Northeastern. So I played a lot of volleyball at the open gym and out at Carter Field. And the D1 kids were just on another level. And it was just fun to watch them practice and play. So I had to ask, were you recruited to play volleyball or were you a walk-on? What's the story there? Yeah, so I started playing volleyball in seventh grade, and I actually got cut from the volleyball team. I didn't make the volleyball team in sixth grade, and that was my journey. And so once I got to high school, I started playing club. So that's um, extra volleyball after you know high school season, and that's when I got exposed to the world of like extremely competitive sports. So I played a club for Cal Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley's junior club team, which is the same team that uh, Carrie Walsh, the Olympic gold uh, beach volleyball player, played at. She's she's a handful of years older than me, so I didn't get to play with her. But during my time with Golden Bears, which is the club volleyball team, we went to the Junior Olympics. We placed ninth in the nation. And uh, that gave me the ability to get scouted from some of the top schools across the U.S. And coming from public school, uh, the public school system in San Francisco, I, I really wanted to, I really wanted to explore more than the Bay Area. And so I visited Northeastern, 
I really loved the vibe. The coach got to see me play and they invited me to join the team and I said yes. So that's the, the beginning story about how I got to Northeastern. But I actually learned about the university when I was in high school and I went to a journalism convention in Seattle. And there's all these like sign up for university newsletter info sheet. I remember just putting my name on everything. And Northeastern was like the most persistent with marketing materials. And at the time, this was 2005 or six, no one in the West Coast really knew what Northeastern was. They would always say, oh, like Northwestern's amazing. And I would always reply with that's a very different school. So now, now the university has a ridiculous reputation. You know, I'm super proud to have played on the volleyball team. But we played in two championships during my career at Northeastern. I played from 2007 to 2011. Unfortunately, we did not win. So uh, it's a sore subject for me because I'm extraordinarily competitive. But being an athlete is a really unique and special experience, uh, especially a varsity athlete in college. And I have a lot of pride being a Husky. Yeah, I love it. I mean, Northeastern definitely has changed a lot over the years. And I remember as a freshman on my first day, just like walking around campus, I would see these these people that had the Northeastern sports backpacks. And you knew that's how like those were the ones who played D1. I, I always remember being a little bit jealous because I was not nearly good at any sport enough to be a D1 athlete. But um, that's so great to hear that you did enjoy your time playing volleyball there. It, it's crazy to think that even since I joined Northeastern, the acceptance rate has like plummeted. Now it's like at like 4.6. It's competing with Northwestern. I think we beat out Northwestern this past year, but um, it's awesome. come a long way. Yeah, it's come a long way. And yeah, also proud alumni. And so I, I wanted to ask, you know, when you were in sixth grade, you didn't make the team. So why were you like, okay, I didn't make the team. I want to continue playing this, even though I'm like not that great at it. And then all of a sudden had become amazing. I, it's interesting. I learned a lot about what motivates me, especially when I keep mm -hmm. on, you know, getting no's and I have to persevere. Well, my middle school won championships 10 years in a row. And then it fed into my high school. So I went to AP, G&E in San Francisco and then my high school's bowl which is a very uh, notable public school. Lowell would win, you know, 15 years of championships. So I wasn't just trying out for like a random team. Like this was the best public school, uh, actually best volleyball program across public and private schools. And I always had ambition to be the best at what I did. And so I remember spending the summer after uh, not making the team and going to like the recreational public facilities and just playing volleyball and, and training myself and playing with like older people, younger people, just being very focused on making the team. That's fantastic. And that's actually a perfect segue into, I'm sure you, you use that mentality to work on venture capital, especially as, you know, a woman of color and an emerging fund manager, right? I, I'm sure there's a lot of obstacles and a lot of no's and a lot of chances for motivation to really come through and, and really go out there and succeed. So I wanted to just get right into startups and venture capital and talk about your path into VC. 
And so you were a Northeastern student, so I'm sure you had a few co-ops. So I'd love to hear as a high level, you know, the step-by-step -step process to get to where you are now, and then we'll dive deep. Yeah, I think being a Northeastern student taught me about like having the character of trying a lot of different things. You know, the co-op program encourages you to work in a specific company for six months and then completely work in a different industry if you like or stay at the same company. And so for those of you who are not familiar with uh, the Northeastern co-op program, it's essentially an integrated internship. So instead of graduating four years, we graduated five. And I did two co-ops, one at Puma Corporate and then uh, Reebok Corporate. And so I use that type of mentality and I co-opt my entire 20s and I've done five career pivots since entering uh, the venture capital industry. I worked uh, at Puma Reebok Corporate. I then worked in the electric bicycle industry for five years and spent time in China, Taiwan and Germany uh, trying to understand how these products were made, how they were integrated into cities. And I thought, after I'd spent a lot of time in that sector that I wanted to do the tech thing. So I grew up in San Francisco. This was like 2014, 15. All my friends were working in tech. I really wanted to like understand what this ecosystem looked like because I already had a large appetite for startups. And so one of my Northeastern friends uh, was head of marketing of a company called VoiceBase. And we were an AI-powered voice analytics B2B company back before AI got like really, really hot on the consumer-facing side. And so I learned a lot about AI and machine learning. I was the first person on the customer success team, and then I grew into channel partnerships. And I learned how to sell product to another business who then sells that product to the end you know, client. You know, I had an incredible time when I was in tech, but I didn't feel like I was very connected to the work that I was doing. And so I looked at myself and really tried to understand what type of superpowers I had as a person. Um, and I knew that I always had a lot of like ability to, to influence, um, to be visionary and to be bold with doing things and working in frontier industries that most people don't really think about when they when they think about joining or making a new career move. You know, I didn't really grow up with a lot of personal financial acumen. And my friends, most of my friends didn't work in finance. I'm the youngest of four with a, a mom from the Philippines that raised all of us by herself. And so I figured that I want to have a different future and I want to create a different future. So I should try to be a venture capitalist. But I had zero finance background. <laughs> I had zero network in venture. And, you know, five years later, I'm part of some of the most amazing, inspiring, and powerful venture networks globally. <laughs> I, you know, we can, we can double click into the, the details of that, but a lot of it came from curiosity, personal ambition, and the constant need to keep on believing in myself. Oh, I love that. That's such a fantastic story. And what a crazy path. I I have to ask, was the transition from working in, you know, customer success to working in high finance an easy one or something that, you know, took a long time or something that didn't make <laughs> sense to you at first? Or what was that transition like? You know, being naive is sometimes a blessing because if you knew if you knew the challenge of everything 
that you were walking into, you might not always do it. That that was like the part of the magic recipe is that uh, I just threw myself into this desire and ambition. And, you know, I developed myself into a super networker. I would just go to events that I found on Eventbrite. LinkedIn wasn't even that active at the time. And, and Venture was not very diverse, you know, in 2018. I think the Me Too movement and BLM movement really made the ecosystem be more progressive. It was an extremely hard pivot. I mean, there is no linear path into venture when you come outside of the industry into the industry. If you study finance and work in private equity, you're banking and happen to score a venture job at co-op, you're kind of born into the ecosystem. But coming from the outside in is one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And I'm five foot and a half on the ground <laughs> and played D1 volleyball. So I've done some hard things in my life. <laughs> wow. Wow. I was going to say there's there's a difference between this being a VC investor, like an analyst or an associate at a firm versus, you know, raising your own fund and being a GP is, you know, a completely different experience. So you know, as someone who wants to start my own VC firm in the coming years, what inspired you to take the leap? Like you didn't just like, you know, put a foot in, you jumped in. <laughs> yeah, that was a, it was a big splash when I did it too. And, you know, I didn't actually, I didn't have ambitions to raise a fund when I started in the ecosystem. I worked for a really small family office and then went to uh, a program called Venture University where I did my first uh, syndicate, which we call a special purpose vehicle. So it's an investment into a specific company that I raised capital under. So my first deal was in 2019. I've done 18 deals since. When I did the Redshare University program, the partners of the program that ran it encouraged me to raise a fund. And I, I remember just looking at them and thinking, excuse me, like what? What, how do you even do that? I don't even, I, I'm just learning how to do this job. And so they said, we think you can do it. And I got my head around it and then started building out Word docs of how to rate the fund and started listening to 20 Minute BC, the Climber Perkins podcast, uh, Mike Maple Jr.'s podcast and from Floodgate and, and literally just started training myself and figuring it out step by step. Yeah, we're going to totally double click on the experience of raising that first fund. But before we go into that, I want to just take a step back and high level. Was there a specific moment where you had figured out that venture capital was the career that was made for you? Because you had done customer success. You work at you know Puma and Reebok, which are you know in, in sports and athletics. And you were a D1 sports yeah, athlete, right? You know, cannabis venture capital is completely different. So was there a specific moment in your experiences where you were like, this is so, so fun for me. This is what I want to do. This is how I want to spend every waking moment because raising a fund and running it is every waking moment of your day, I'm sure. So was there a moment for you where something had clicked? Yeah. I mean, I think it's many moments that reconnect me to this why and why continue this path. And it's a fact that I have the ability to move money, shift power, and change culture. And from a really 
high level, that's my North Star. You know, when I first started in venture, I decided to really focus on investing in the cannabis industry, primarily software, because that's the last point of experience that I came from. And, but I always knew it was just going to be my stepping stone into the ecosystem, my way to differentiate when everybody, you know, is focused on the entirety of industry, either healthcare or fintech or generalist. I knew I wanted to brand uh, within what I call frontier wellness industries. And so what I love is I, I love people. I think that people are the most amazing, ridiculous, and powerful products in the world. I don't mean to call people product, but like, you know, at a company, your most important asset is your people. And this is a major people game. And we can use technology to help um, enable us to do five people jobs when we're one person. But at the end of the day, it's it's people who you have to work with in venture. Yeah, 1000%. And I think that, you know, amongst all the other guests that I've had, they've had that realization very early on that people are the key to being successful in life, but specifically venture capital. And I, now I think it's a great time to go back and really dive into the experience of raising that first fund. For starters, I just, I'm curious, where did Journey One, like the name Journey One Ventures even come from? When I started the firm, as I mentioned, I knew that I wanted to grow into investing in other industries um, as, as I evolved and as the world evolved. It actually started as the Journey Fund. And uh, yeah, my, my friend Pam Patterson, who runs an agency in LA called 1440, helped me develop it into Journey One. And I just think that it's it rings better. And for me, it helps remind me that part of uh, building things and being a creator is that the journey is super fun and also wild and the end goal can change. And so it makes me um, stay present to the, the every step that I take to build this firm and our reputation and brand. I love that. I love that. So how'd you find your first LP? How'd you get your first investor in the fund? You know, it's funny. It's from a WhatsApp chat. Uh, so I'm part of a, I mean, at this point, if you're in venture, you have like 20 slacks and maybe like 30 WhatsApp chats. And so I'm in a cannabis executives WhatsApp chat. And uh, I connected with Heather Malloy, who's also my investment advisor. And I'd never heard about her and realized that there were a ton of women in finance in my industry that some of them weren't as recognized in terms of like just popularity with press and what have you. But Heather is an incredibly accomplished woman in finance and just great human overall. But she led the M&A team at TerraSend, which is a publicly traded cannabis company and did about like up to $300 million worth of transactions when they were buying up some companies. And so I figured that she would be an incredible asset on the team, given that, you know, there's a ton of consolidation that happens within our industry. And so I, she messaged me about something when I posted something in the WhatsApp chat, we had a phone call 
and I shared about my vision and she loves to back women founders and I'm a founder myself. I just run a fund versus, I mean, it is a company, but um, yeah, so Heather Malloy, first LP in Journey One. And was originally the target, I think you hit, like it was a $10 million fund, right? Correct. And so was the target originally 10 million from the get-go or was that something that based off interest from LPs, okay, like 10 million seems like a good number for now? Yeah, I mean, it started at 20 uh, when I was looking to to build this in January of 2020, which was COVID. And then I wanted to do five. And uh, the challenging thing about raising a fund is that every LP has a different opinion about what you should build. And so it's really hard to sometimes stick with a strategy when you're talking to an LP that has capital and lots of influence and lots of experience. And they have a different opinion of how to run a fund than another LP that also has equal level of experience capital. And so, you know, at the end of the day, like this first fund is a pilot and we're still raising capital right now. And we are structured as a 506C fund. So you can either structure a firm as a 506B, which default most funds are. Uh, the difference between a C and a B is that as a C, we can publicly solicit. And so it gives us uh, the ability to talk about our fundraise online. Technically, if you're a 506B fund, you can't you know, solicit through press release, through podcasts, through LinkedIn posts. And as a 506C fund, the only back office difference that we have to to do is get our investors to get third-party accre uh, investor accreditation. So it's just having their lawyer, accountant, or our third-party service look at their financial statements and say, yes, I do make over 200K or I have over $1 million of net assets to invest in this fund. Most of the time, if you're like an investor on AngelList or you invest into a 506B fund, it's self-accreditation. Gotcha. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know that. That's really, really helpful. Um, you know, every day I write in my notebook, I like do goal setting every single day. It's like super cringy, but <laughs> I, I write down that by the end of 26, when I'm like turning 27, I want to have started the process of raising my first fund. So this is super helpful and super good for me to know. Um, so in your experiences so far talking to LPs, what has been the hardest aspect of raising a fund? I think, you know, raising capital in general, being an investor and raising capital, fundamentally different jobs, right? As an investor, I go out into the market. Uh, hopefully, I already have a fund that has money, so I don't have to worry about raising money. I'm just trying to figure out what company I want to find, um, what sectors of a market do I want to invest into, and what is my thesis. As a fund manager, you know, I, I love the investing side, but there's so many administrative tasks that take a, a lot of my time. So I'm an investor, I manage the fund admin, and then I'm fundraising. And then when my portfolio companies are fundraising, I'm fundraising and I'm fundraising on top of my own fundraise. So it's a pretty insane job. I would not undermine how much work it is. If you like investing, stay as an investor. Raising a fund is a fundamentally different experience 
it may look cool, but don't do it because it is a, you know, a spectacle and you want the title. Like it makes it harder to be an investor when you have to do all of these things. And I think that being able to raise, you know, capital from people, it comes from a place of privilege. Like I did not have, you know, when from my family invested in any of my deals thus far, I don't come from a family with any sort of money. I don't even know any relative in my family that has worked in finance. And so I had to build that LP base literally from the ground up. And so I've done, you know, out of those deals that I've done, I probably have upwards of at this point, a hundred LPs I've invested in my SPVs and my fund. And, you know, it's a lot of management to share LP updates, to share investor updates. Some, some fund managers have 75 companies in one fund. And then when they raise their second fund, maybe it's another 75 or 50. That is responsibility. Every investment that you make is technically a 10 year term. <laughs> Every fund you raise is a 10 year term. Yeah. So I think, I think for a lot of the viewers out there, um, it's important to know what you're signing up for and the length of commitment, because it's not like a startup where you can build, it doesn't work and you're done. Like if it doesn't work and you still have investments, you're still responsible for managing that capital and you still have fiduciary responsibility. So it's very different than just being, you know, a startup founder raising money. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you were to take a look at your time within a given day or maybe within a given month, what is the percentage of time that you're actually, you know, outsourcing or doing diligence or writing checks versus doing operational things to either raise funds to invest or, you know, like hiring fellows or making sure all like the finances of the fund are, are properly taken care of. Um, what, what would you say that ratio is? That's a great question. And I, I wish I had a specific answer, but I'm so busy doing these things that I don't track them. Okay. I think a better <laughs> question is, I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, I think the better question is how, how much time do I have to sleep? How much time do I have for wellness? And, um, you know, I think being a solo GP, is is really challenging and fortunately you know i don't have kids right now i do want kids down the road but you know a lot of solo gps have other partners to help them you know when they take that financial risk of not getting paid for two to three years you know i was just on my gp cohort call uh, i'm in an emerging fund manager program through recap capital it's essentially like a fund manager accelerator and uh, one of the gps you know, she's at a conference. We're doing pitch practice because we have a LP pitch day December 14th. She's like, I just, I've been back to back meeting. It's like, I've had three, four hours of sleep. I'm at a conference. I'm going to do this pitch. That is our life. And so, <laughs> you know, there's a certain level of when you do burn out. And to be honest, I, I had a pretty hard burnout last year in 2022 that made me go into a year of healing and focusing on wellness. Um, and, you know, I think it's really interesting when the people who invest in like digital health, you know, wellness, and we're not always taking care of ourselves. I think that's like a really important thing to look at 
and say, you know, how am I practicing the life that I want people to live uh, while balancing this really time intensive, high like relationship touch job? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I appreciate you being honest and vulnerable here. That was a perfect segue for what I wanted to talk about, which was the experience of being a solo GP. You were mentioning earlier that these commitments, when you take checks from LPs, you said they're 10 year long commitments sometimes. So even as you have these moments of burnout and you want to take a break, like you are obligated to continue giving updates, you know, these LPs are wanting to make sure that their money's being like properly utilized. So that balance must be incredibly, incredibly difficult. So I, I do feel like on the outside, there's definitely a lot of glitz and glamour. So I really appreciate you uncovering the other side of, man, it's like really fucking hard. Like it's a really <laughs> time consuming. Yeah. So um, I mean, I have I, that. I, I think I think I have that that. The reason why I say that, and I think when we started this podcast, you you told me, you know, think about what you would tell your early self in this stage. And I, I didn't tell myself any of these things because I didn't know, right? I also didn't have a mentor, but uh, I, I fantasized about being a VC and I fantasized about what the life would be like. And when you look at the tier one 20 to 30-year-old firms, they went through the same thing I'm going through too, but it took them 30 years to get there. So when it comes to like founding a fund versus founding a startup, hopefully in 10 to 12 years, you've, you've built the biggest business in your industry as a startup founder. In a fund, you're just getting started. Like, I don't know Ed Zimmerman, who is uh, one of the partners of an LP called First Close Capital, I believe. He had a really amazing Twitter post about expectations in investing in funds as an LP. And you typically don't see where the performance is yet till roughly around year seven. So while you're on fund one, or I'm on fund one looking to raise fund two, I might not have any like meaningful metrics to say, hey, I've invested in 20 to 30 companies they're still sprouting. Invest in me and I'll, I'll provide another portfolio. But it's it's a, a different kind of mentality to invest uh, in this type of job. That's a common topic that we I, I like to bring up on the podcast as well is VC has notoriously long feedback cycles. So you don't really know if you're good at the job until like 10 years down the line. <laughs> and Yeah, it's yeah. kind of weird. <laughs> To be totally honest, yeah, I I was at All Raise, uh, All Raise's VC conference. All Raise is an organization that is uh, for the female founders and funders community. Some notable folks like Aileen Lee from Cowboy Ventures to Christine Green of Forerunner, which is one of the biggest uh, venture funds raised by women. And uh, I was sitting in this workshop and. You know, one of the partners of Pair VC had the same story as me when she started. And I was like, wow, three years of no salary. That's, that's rough. I'm on like, you know, a meaningful salary. I'm like, I'm on, you know, year four of, of grinding and consulting on the side and building this firm. We're talking about how challenging it is, but because I'm still doing it, it, it means that it's so worth that challenge. 
you really have to love this to have the skin to work in this game. But it, again, it's very different if you work in an established firm versus building your own firm. Yeah, well said. Well said. I That gives me a lot to think about. And personally, I'm just already so thankful that I have this information and access to this sort of knowledge here as I go about my career and trying to rise up the ranks or build something within venture. We, you know, we talked about all the difficult aspects of being a solo GP. And you were saying, like, there's a reason why you're sticking in with this, because to some extent, like, you, you love it. So what makes the job so fulfilling for you? Yeah, I think one thing you pointed out is that VCs love to multitask. And um, whether it's a good thing or bad thing, maybe a lot of us have ADHD. <laughs> I, cer I certainly do. But, um, you know, I think uh, this job really requires a ton of strategic and critical thinking, which is something that I'm really good innately at. And I was like, reflecting on on this thought um in the past few months of like why do i like this i mean it's kind of tiring right so it's a critical thing you're like digging 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 connecting dots that don't connect looking back looking before looking present um and i think it goes back to when i first learned how to play volleyball my first coach um coach louie when i was in seventh grade like she taught me how to place the ball exactly on a specific part of the court and why in college we watched a lot of video before we played games and so we had to learn about how does that player move on the court and when they move that way when is the best opportunity to strike and get a point and so i love that like super strategic thinking i think when i help founders think about capital raising and how they should build like narrative and pitch it's super fun to do, especially when you're working with a founder that kicks ass and like they're super motivated. You know, you're giving them energy. They're giving you energy back. They can slam dunk and you can say, hey, I helped you get there. And it feels really great to help you accomplish your goals. And so um, I think, for example, you know, one of our companies is raising right now and, you know, they're going from seed to series A and the goal is not... I think when it comes to like structuring fundraises, when you're in your seed round to your series A, the goal is like, what do you want to accomplish from here till then? Like if you're raising on a $10 million valuation at seed and you want to get to like $40 million valuation at A, I always ask, well, how much revenue do we need to get in order to get that $40 million valuation? That then sets your KPI. And the goals of how you want to use that seed capital is like, you know, the founder is motivated by increasing their value of ownership um, and increasing the value of the company. And so, you know, it takes a lot to get from 10 million to a billion dollars in revenue. You know, there are certain stages in venture that are required to get there. And so I love helping founders like work backwards on their goals. And so um, I've, I've learned a ton about fundraising in general and the psychology around it, the dynamics, the relationship dynamics, crazy and it's fun. <laughs> I, yeah, I want to echo that same sentiment. Like the reason why even at like 23 and I've, I've always been interested in startups and VC, 
is because of like those founder interactions and strategy. I just think that the crazy big dreamers, those will be the founders and they're the ones who are actually going to make it happen at some point. And they're so passionate and so knowledgeable about the specific thing that they're building that it just makes me excited to learn from them and try to help them. And although like I am very young and I can't actually provide insane amounts of value, like I'm sure you can, Helene, I still just love being in the circle of founders and investors who are desperately trying to help these founders, you know, get that slam dunk, achieve that goal. Yeah, I, I I think I was in your shoes at one point and I was always the youngest person in the room all the time, like until probably my thirties. And so I don't want you to think that, you know, you are too young or you don't know as much as I do because I think that um, there's so much that you know that I don't and we have you know different values to offer companies and founders in this job like any job every um, you know practice makes perfect and so like every deal I do makes me a better VC um, and it just takes reps to get there right like I still look at legal term sheets and I'm like Jesus like I can study, I can study liquidity references, drag along rides, all that stuff. When you put it into legal vernacular, my brain's just like, what, what the fuck? I'm just going to give this to my lawyer right now. But, you know, eventually when I get to my 1,000 term sheet, <laughs> I, won't, I won't need my lawyer as much on the front end. But, you know, it just takes time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I want to actually double click on what you were saying there about um, like accumulating knowledge and like understanding how VC works. And even at a young age, there's still some things that you can provide. And so I've been, you know, thinking very deeply and intentionally about something that, you know, I can specialize in some sort of unique value that I can showcase to the world that I belong in this space of venture capital and startups. So for you, Helene, who specializes in misunderstood markets, right, that is a very unique thing. I wanted to dive deep on how you came to cannabis investing. I know you had talked a little bit about technology investing a little earlier, but if you look at all the classic venture deals, right, it's like the Ubers, it's like the Stripes, like fintech, um, software, AI right now. So I, I wanted to get your take on the experience of investing in cannabis and in misunderstood markets. And so take that however you'd like. Um, I just like to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, well, we've actually added an and to that, which is we are doing cannabis and psychedelics. And so my, my focus is really frontier wellness industries that are often misunderstood and highly regulated. And um, for Fund One, our focus primarily is investing in software and biotech within the cannabis and psychedelic sectors. And so, you know, why software and biotech? I think when people think about um, venture capital, they have to understand that it's a specific type of asset class that, that funds specific type of businesses. Not all businesses are venture backable businesses. And so in looking at, okay, well, if I want to play in these industries, what kind of companies do I have to invest into to get the type of return profile that my investors are looking for? Like we invest on what we call power law, which is a 
for example, if I have 20 companies in my portfolio, I'm assuming 80 to 90% are going to die. And one to two to maybe three will give me ridiculous outsized returns. And, you know, three to five X to 10 X my fund. So if I raise 10 million, um, I will be able to give my principal back to my investors, the 10 million. And then on top of that five X with those one or two, three outliers in the company. And so, um, you know, when, when looking at the ecosystem of what can we invest in, in cannabis and psychedelics that gives us these, you know, 20 X plus returns on our capital. Um, I had to spend a lot of time because I think when people think about the cannabis specific, specific industry, and I'll break down psychedelics and how we view it, there's, I mean, it's just an industry and the business models that exist in consumer packaged goods has same types of businesses that operate within the cannabis industry. You know, the cannabis industry uh, is primarily built around a very high value crop and plant. And, you know, I think when people talk about like what drugs are, like caffeine is a drug, um, sugar is a drug, and we just have these perceptions of what we think about, you know, what is investable, what is good, wrong, or right. And so, you know, the cannabis plant has been around for centuries, used in, you know, China and India for wellness purposes. And, and then in like the 70s, it became extremely stigmatized with Richard Nixon's war on drugs. And that was just a tool to, you know, demonize uh, black and brown uh, cultures. And so why we call it a misunderstood is because that is how most people understand these sectors. And at the end of the day, they unlock a ton of wellness, recreational, and medicinal benefits. And um, we're super excited about that. So the areas that we focus on are uh, what companies power this industry that has potential for global scale. So for example, um, we're investors in Navis, which is the leading uh, tech-enabled distributor in, in the U.S. and in the world. So California has the biggest global market um, in the U.S. And the U.S. is doing uh, estimated to do $33 billion in 2023. Um, the U.S. did $18 billion in 2020. And the illicit market is upwards of $60 billion in the U.S., so when we talk about where can we make money for our investors and also making impact, we're investing into a $100 billion rough market just in the U.S. alone. It does not include the opportunities in Europe and APAC. Um, but, you know, there are 40 plus states that have legalized uh, cannabis across the U.S. And um, because of the regulatory nuances, we have vertical SaaS. So we have point of sale systems specifically to power dispensaries. Square does not play in this industry. And um, we have, you know, B2B wholesale marketplaces that help um, uh, growers and dispensaries uh, buy product, exchange product, and pay for product. And, uh, you know, I spent the summer in Europe to look at what other countries, what's happening in other countries. And... Um, 
Switzerland and Germany have uh, legalized medical cannabis and, and Germany is looking to legalize adult use. And the amazing thing is that in Germany, when you want to get cannabis as a prescription, you go to your primary care doctor, not a weed doctor. And where you pick it up is a pharmacy, just like your other medical goods. And so um, you can get up to 70% of your prescription subsidized. And that's incredible. I think that the medical and pharma uh, applications for cannabis and uh, cannabinoids is the compounds within the cannabis plant have not even been realized yet. Um, so in the U.S., we legalize medical cannabis, but we sell it through a recreational distribution channel. In other countries that are federally legal, like Germany, it's actually sold through the intention of medical purposes and consumed um, through a medical transaction. And that is where I think the future is. And I think that is where a ton of unrealized value will sit. And um, use cases for medical cannabis. Um, Epidiolex uh, is a cannabis-derived drug that is available in the U.S. for epilepsy. Um, you should YouTube some videos on cannabis and Parkinson's. And people who have really intense, like, you know, shaking after having cannabis, they'll be normal. And so sometimes you have to see these things to believe them. And um, I'm fortunate to, to fully see this. And I think one of my gifts is to help um, people understand how to relearn what um, these magical plants can do for people, especially as we have an insane amount of mental health issues in the world. So that is my spiel. I'm more nerdy on you, but... <laughs> It's so funny. There's so many different ways that I want to take this conversation and we don't really have too much time, but I, I did want to mention that for one of like my classes, I did a whole presentation on um, psychedelics <laughs> and like how like they can be really helpful if the stigma around them was removed and like the, the core science of it was used in certain products and it went really, really well. And so I'm a big believer in both of those spaces, right? Cannabis and, and psychedelics. I thought it's, it's very interesting, the stigma around it. I remember growing up, my parents would be so, so against anything related to those two topics. You know, I was just like born in a family household that was really like condemning any sort of drug, even alcohol. So um, it's crazy now that it's become uh, the culture has changed around these drugs. And what I did want to talk about, though, is you mentioned VC deals and VC fund cycles are about 10 years. So what are you specifically seeing within the next five to 10 years? Maybe not 50, 60 years down the line. Yeah, I mean, uh, so I work in regulated markets and something I've had to learn about is politics and uh, corporate America and how regulations change based on power and money. And um, unfortunately, we were, when I got in this industry, you know, we, I thought back then by now we would have federally legalized cannabis. I mean, over more than half of the U.S. states have legalized on a state by state level. And, uh, you know, COVID happened, that distracted uh, the government from looking at this more seriously. Um, 
uh, we have a couple of different wars going on right now in the world. And so it, a lot of it is just like prioritization and a level of power and, and money to shift regulators and politicians. Um, so my hope is that, you know, in the next five years, cannabis in the U.S. is legalized. I am super excited about what's happening internationally in regards to medical market. And, and, I, and every country has a domino effect on the other. So, for example, you know, Switzerland is almost like subculture of Germany. And Germany is like one of the leading G powers in Europe. And so, but they're part of the EU. And they wanted to legalize adult use cannabis um, from medical. But the EU wasn't ready yet. Because they're like, you know, Germany is going to create a domino effect. We want to make sure we understand how to regulate these markets. The legislation in the U.S. right now that is uh, present is uh, rescheduling cannabis to Schedule Three um, drug, and so that'll um, create a lot of different uh, beneficial factors. But tobacco and, and alcohol aren't even scheduled, you know, and so it's it's. Yeah, I mean, it is odd, and then you realize how money and politics work in the U.S. And you know, back in that back in the day, tobacco and alcohol companies had a lot of power and money. They still do, and so you know, we write law to work for the people that write them. Now, it is trying to fix some of those <laughs> those wrongdoings that uh, created barriers for people to get access to a medicinal plant, and that is. That is the goal. So regulatory um, regulatory hurdles is the goal. And just just more access to patients and people who, who want to use cannabis and uh, psychedelics for, you know, leisure purposes or uh, medicinal, like, mental health impacts. It's, it's hard to predict. I mean, I think you work in this industry. Everyone's like, so what's your guess for when we'll get federal legalization? I'm like, fuck, I don't know. Like, <laughs> we keep on hoping. But, but any opportunity here for investors is that it's, it's you know, we are we are one of the first, you know, 10 to 20 funds in the world to be first to market. So we really understand this industry. And, um, you know, Uber, for example, uh, services the cannabis industry in Canada. Yeah, I see DoorDash at our conferences. Uh the top alcohol company is like Constellation Brands that owns Corona, comes to the conferences. Like everybody is in the cannabis industry. They just might not publicly mention it. And I mean, from what I'm seeing and, you know, my generation of people, it seems like there's a lot of positive tailwinds culturally. There's a big shift moving away from maybe not nicotine, but tobacco specifically amongst the new generation. So it seems like, oh, and, and on a more um, open and progressive view when it comes to psychedelics and cannabis. So I hope that rings true. And I hope that you get to, you know, put you put in all this hard work, you get to see the fruits of that labor in the coming five to 10 years. Um, but unfortunately, though, I feel like we could talk about this forever. But <laughs> Our time has come to an end. I've taken way too much time. Um, but Helene, it was such a lovely and fun conversation. But it is time for the final ceremonial ask, which is three final questions for you. Are you ready to go? Let's do it. Okay. 
So in the spirit of being new to venture capital, if you were to write a letter to your past self right when you were starting in VC, what would you write about? <laughs> oh, I could write a book. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I think I was really fortunate to 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 learn how to teach myself a lot. I didn't really have a specific mentor. I think it is really helpful to have one. For example, um, if you are an analyst at a venture firm and you want to develop a strong relationship with a principal um, or a vice president at a firm, you know that someone a level a couple of levels up from you that could teach you a lot of things because this is an extremely like apprenticeship game. You learn by doing. It is not something you can study. And uh, if you want to start a firm you know, find a GP that has time to meet with you once a month um, that you can maybe help their fund out in a way, do some of the back office stuff so that you can get a sense of like, what does this actually look like before I jump in? I I think there were a couple of steps that I wish I took to make the path less painful, to be honest. And that's really like, you know, planning, planning, uh, you know, financially for how long the road could look. But, you know, I live a life that's such where my burn's not very high and I can be really, really lean. Yeah. So I think uh, getting a, a mentor is super important. If you don't have one at the moment, just find three podcasts that you really, really love that focus on the industries that you want to invest into and with VCs that invest in certain, you know, sectors that you want to invest to and just learn from them and then follow them on Twitter, follow them on LinkedIn. Yeah, absolutely. I think you said a lot of things that really resonated with me, especially like the apprenticeship model and venture capital. A lot of the teachings aren't on, well, some of them are on blog posts, but the, the way that you really learn it is you live it being right next to someone who's doing it. And so, and you learn from them. Uh, that's really great to hear. The next question here is to shout out a VC or an investor that you think's been killing the game recently, or maybe has some unique takes or wrote a fantastic article that you like, or someone who personally helped you along the way? Well, um, most recently, a, a dear friend, Amber Illig, who runs the council fund, just closed her fund one, um, $5 million fund target. I think she has like close to like 20 companies at this point. I mean, she's a solo GP. We have wow. a solo GP WhatsApp chat with like six other solo GPs and we meet, <laughs> you know, once a month, every nice. other month. And man, she's, she just gave birth to her uh, little girl, like, last year earlier this year and she used to work at cruise like i just have a ton of respect for how she ran her process and um you know the the community the little community that we've co-created together so i just want to give her an incredible shout out like i know how hard it is and it's incredible that she's now starting her fun too wow yeah that is so so impressive um Wow, um, that's amazing. I, I'm very happy for her and hopefully I'll get to meet her one day. Uh, next is, and the last question for the day, is to shout out a startup that you think has a lot of potential and can maybe change the world. So we are actually working on an investment right now with a um, one of the most notable psychedelics companies in the world um, called MAPS. And it stands for Multiple Disciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. 
And I was fortunate to learn about MAPS in 2017 when I went to my first Burning Man. And the woman who um, helped uh, run the camp, she is a, a therapist um, that works with psychedelics as a, a tool and a resource for her patients. And she exposed me to the work that MAPS did. MAPS started in 1986 as a nonprofit and then structured a public benefit corporation in 2014. And that's the entity that we're investing in. And what MAPS does is that they're a biotech and drug development company that is uh, going to market with uh, MDMA for PTSD in the US specifically. So they just passed phase three clinical trials. There's phase one, two, and three when it comes to bringing a drug to market. Um, and it's the last phase and so right now, MDMA is a Schedule One drug, meaning that uh, it does not have any type of medical efficacy. Through these trials, they've proven that, yes, MDMA has medical efficacy, specifically for PTSD. And there are 13 million people in the U.S. with PTSD. Two million of that have severe PTSD. And uh, a lot of veterans, trauma patients. The only two drugs in market that... Um, are used to treat PTSD patients are uh, two SSRIs, which are uh, antidepressants. But uh, MDMA is far superior in terms of the ability to uh, to have um, those patients then say that they have no more symptoms of PTSD, which is uh, which was making this a breakthrough therapy. So um, you know this company has like the biggest heart. Um, the most incredible people. Um, we held a webinar with uh, Mike Moulet, who's the COO. He's actually based in Boston, and he uh, led the commercial efforts of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine. And so they have a tremendous team of legitimate, you know, pharmacists, pharmacy-backed uh, operators and um They've been on a really long journey, and they are finally um, getting the ability to uh, get more access to to treat people who are suffering with uh, severe mental health issues. So, shout out to Maps. <laughs> wow, that sounds super super impactful. Like, what an amazing thing that they're building. I mean, getting to phase three and passing phase three is absolutely huge. Like, I had uh, I'd worked at a biotech company, and a lot of our therapies got like can that phase two or phase one and like a lot yeah, of and money these RNG things are just goes not, down oh. they're not cheap biotech life science skills yeah. way more capital to get to revenue than a b2b yep. SaaS company absolutely absolutely but yeah what an exciting product i i look forward to like just watching the progress of it i think it'll go huge but helene Thank you so, so much for joining me on the show today. It was so great to just connect with the fellow Husky and just awesome to hear all the stuff that you've been up to. Yeah, it's it's been wild. I'm super happy and honored to have the ability to share a lot of my learning to the next generation of investors out there. Uh, my you know closing words of advice is just go for it and uh, put your heart out there and believe in yourself and the right things will fall in place. And when when you fail and when it gets hard, uh, just recommit and uh, give yourself time and grace. You get the rest that you need to go back at it. Um, but, you know, persistence is key. I have I turned uh, LPs that said no to me into yeses. 
And it's the same thing, the thing that founders do. They constantly just come back and they say, hey, I accomplished this. Are you back in or are you out? All right, I'll hit you up in six months. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a long game, but it's uh, worth it when you can possibly impact people's lives and uh, make your investors money. <laughs> Absolutely. You heard it here first. Helene, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it.